Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Taylor from the RSA and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event as part of our Rethinking Education series. We're gathering practitioners, policymakers and innovators to discuss whether the challenges that emerged during the COVID-19 crisis might in fact be opportunities to build new areas of consensus across political divides in teaching and learning, and thereby to create a fairer education system for all our young people. For today's event, we're turning to the hugely important topic of school curriculum and assessment. Will two years of turmoil, canceled exams, growing public concern around fairness and fitness for purpose prove to be the catalyst for a new approach to curriculum and assessment? Is it time for a fundamental rethink of the core capabilities on which they should focus? We've got a terrific panel with us today to help us explore these questions. First up, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Mary Richardson. Mary is an Associate Professor of Educational Assessment at UCL's Institute of Education, where she leads the MA in Assessment and supervises doctoral candidates researching assessment, ethics and citizenship. Mary is currently completing a book about what has happened to public confidence and trust in education assessment. And she argues that there is an urgent need to reframe the public understanding of this area. So Mary, you could speak to us for hours. It's terribly unfair, you've only got five minutes initially, but over to you. Thanks very much, Matthew. And thank you for inviting me. So I'm just going to talk to two points this afternoon because I think over the past year alone, we've seen the difficulty inherent in our system of national assessment that relies on summative testing as its benchmark. We're stuck with this system that's really rigid. It has rigid timelines, rigid practical settings, and it relies on one form of summative assessment to characterize what's happening in our schools. And that's a big problem. I think the second thing that we need to be having a really urgent conversation about is what do we mean by assessment? Because mostly what we talk about in public settings are actually examinations and tests rather than all of the other types of educational assessment that's available to us. And what that shows me is that our um, educational assessment system and our view of it is very old fashioned if we were to roll the clock back to the early 20th, late 19th century, we wouldn't see anything much different in schools in terms of how we look at student achievement. So there's two things I want to say. First of all, I'm advocating and arguing for assessment literacy. We need to develop and invest in a structured form of education about education and assessment. That incredible professional role of teachers has become so apparent to us in the last year. Um, I've never had so many people tell me how they suddenly respect teachers and I'm hooray at last. So that skill and professional integrity is acknowledged. But our programmes for teacher education um, don't necessarily focus on assessment in the right kind of way. And then I think coupled with this, we've got this issue of public confidence in our testing systems is really at an all time low. It's very weak. And part of that is because it's incredibly hard for people to understand and it's not explained very well. In that before time, as I call it, before COVID, we had this annual rally, rallying cry in August of people saying, oh, the exam results are out, standards are slipping, um, etc. 
And I, I think that's so unfair because that derided the work of students and of teachers. But now it's really interesting to see that those so-called terrible exam measures are now being held up as the gold standard and people are frightened. They don't want teacher assessment because they're concerned about teachers being unfair. And of course, I acknowledge there's research from my own institution and many others that show us, and we've known that in assessment for many years, that teachers are not accurate predictors of grade outcomes. But that's nothing to do with their professional standards. That's to do with other reasons, such as accountability, anxiety, and pressure that's laid upon them. So I think it's really important that we understand these things. And most of all, the most important message for the public is, there's no such thing as a totally fair or valid or reliable test or assessment. It doesn't exist. It never has done and it never will do. We have to understand what we mean and by error when it comes to assessment. And people have to understand that process and practice. I think the other thing there is if we can help people to understand this better, we can improve confidence. I think one of the most depressing elements of the past year in public discussions about assessment has been primarily driven by politicians talking about exams as always being the fairest way to test students. And that's not actually true and it's unfair and actually it's really unhelpful. I want to say I'm not anti-exams at all. I think in their place, they are a terrific form of assessment, but they aren't always the fairest or right way to assess learning. And I think sometimes they skew what our aim of education is. When we read or discuss assessment in public settings as well, I think it's really important to remember that quite often people are worried about um, cheating, about other kinds of malfeasance, as we call it. And I think it's time that we actually trusted ourselves and our system a bit more. Most of us don't cheat. We don't subvert systems. And that's primarily because most of us understand it's morally indefensible, but also it doesn't serve as well in so many other ways too. So I think finally, to sum up, I'd like to argue for the fact that first of all, we need to be really honest about what are our assessments for? What are we testing? What are we assessing? What are the differences there and why do they matter? We've got a real opportunity here to do something new and something that could be really exciting. And I'm just gonna stick my neck out and say, my, the first thing on my list would be to scrap GCSEs. They're redundant, they're costly, and I think our students deserve something better at the age of 16. And finally, I think our knowledge of educational assessment in this country is outstanding, it's world leading. And I think we can use it to build something really inspirational. Thanks. Thank you, Mary. I mean, one of the reasons we, we, we set up this set of uh, events was the sense that COVID might enable us to escape some of the kind of hoary old false dichotomies that have bedeviled education debate for so long. And I just wanted to get into one of those, which is the assumption often amongst more traditionalist minded people that any attempt to move away from the kind of exam system we have is an abandonment of rigor. Mm. That really what you're saying is, well, it, a whole bundle of things are implied by it. You want exams that are, you want testing that is easier. Uh, you don't want testing that is so competitive, that distinguishes success from failure so clearly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, partly am I right in the sense that this is one of the things that bedevils this debate? Uh, and to what extent can we sort of uncouple 
the question of what is the best form of assessment from this other set of issues which are to do with I don't know kind of cult, almost culture wars really um I think it is very it's very hard to uncouple those things too because I think the one thing that we have to accept is that assessment is a it's a social practice it's very much embedded in our culture and and it's really really important practice as well for teachers and in teaching but I think what what we have is an incredibly narrow and reduced vision of what that is and it's linked all the time it comes back to a very economics driven model which is you must make a grade in order to be successful in that way and that has narrowed our curriculum it's narrowed the way we teach it's narrowed the way children learn and um and i think that's just it that's it is as i said it's incredibly old-fashioned and i think this is why we need to step back and look at how we even talk about this we need to find new language to discuss this and we need to help people understand it better thank you mary we'll we'll, we'll, we'll come back to you later for the in the conversation we're going to have so secondly uh, i'm going to turn to an old friend of the rsa bill lucas bill is director of the center for real world learning and professor of learning at the university of winchester an internationally renowned thought leader in education and creativity he's also co-founder of rethinking assessment a new movement arguing for a major overhaul of the assessment system in England, and Bill's not only got the challenge of compressing a huge number of ideas into five minutes, but he's got to do it with a PowerPoint presentation. So, Bill, over to you. Thanks, Matthew. I strongly agree with uh, uh, everything that Mary has said, especially that we need assessment literacy, a, a greater uh, an improvement in that right across the, the, the field. And in the way that she was implying, I think we need a multimodality about the way we get at what young people are capable of. Um, if I would start with a critique uh, drawn from this recent Rethinking Assessment paper about the current system, um, it's uh, too narrow, single discipline, uh, doesn't really test deeper learning, uh, doesn't really look at wider dispositions, um, not really interested in oracy, um, uh, not really interested in practical learning, uh, and uh, reliant on a huge amount of factual recall. Its methods are blunt, uh, highly dependent on uh, annual events in sports halls uh, using uh, paper and uh, pretty high stakes, not most of them, not all. Um, it's got dubious validity as uh, recent select committee uh, hearings have reminded us, especially in, the, in English and arts. It's uh, not really uh, felt to be very uh, reliable by employers, HE, FE, uh, students or teachers or indeed parents. So that, that doesn't uh, bode well. And as a, a number of people have, have uh, drawn attention to uh, Daniel Coretz recently, it's particularly harmful. And it seems to me that doing no harm, uh, whether that harm is the forgotten third that Askell talks of, uh, is a rather important part of a public uh, system. You can't divorce assessment from curriculum and pedagogy and whichever model you go for, whether it's uh, our thinking, Guy Claxton mine about expansive education, the World Economic Forum, Friends in America, there's a general consensus that it's not a binary argument this we need uh, literate numerate scientifically able young men and women we also need uh, uh, young men and women of character and who have competencies let's not get fussed about the language uh, but i think there's a international consensus on the direction here except in england you can see it in wales you can hear and see it in scotland it's still there in northern ireland uh, england is an outlier 
If you look across the world, there are promising practices that we can learn from. And now surely is the moment to do just that. I'm going to focus on just a few of these in my short minutes, and I'm going to try and then bring it back together and think about how we express the final outcome, whether it's at 16 or at 18, 19. Um, just to focus on uh, some of those, those are the ones uh, that I'd circled, the, um, the idea of a, 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 more, a fairer test of performance. So discovering what young people can do rather than what they can write about possibly being able to recall or do. Two really good examples from PISA here, collaborative problem solving and the uh, one I'm involved in at the moment, um, creative thinking. It's not easy. These are virtual examples. These are online examples, but the formative assessment thinking that they've spawned is proving to be really useful for practitioners wishing to track the development of these capabilities in young people. Um, we have a really good qualification here in, here, here in England uh, and Wales called the Extended Project Qualification and indeed its younger sister, the HPQ. Uh, we're not using it well enough. Only about 30,000 kids in every cohort do this. It's got lots that we might want to learn from. Um, looking across the world, there are plenty of examples of this. When you go to do an engineering course in a Russell Group University, you're likely to be using project-based learning and an extended project qualification, just as you are when you qualify uh, to be a doctor uh, or a nurse in many countries across the world. Um, we might also look to the um, opportunities afforded by technology, uh, micro-credentialing, digital badging, learning from, if you like, the scouts and the guides, learning how we can describe what kids can do in small bites. Here's an example, by the way, from the states of uh, teachers developing their learning, but the things that they're learning about seem to me remarkably close to the kind of dispositions we might want young people to have. Here's a homegrown example being used quite widely now across the UK. It's, uh, it's an RSA partnership. Uh, here are some colleagues are working uh, down in Plymouth that we've been uh, in discussion with uh, called Real Ideas. Uh, I think we can be more fun about this. Um, uh, Mary invites us to think about the purpose of, of assessment. When assessment uh, is learning, so assessment as learning, then being playful and exploratory seems to be a very good idea. Uh, here's an example from Georgia in the States. Here's an example uh, used for 15-year-olds in the state of Victoria. Uh, in Australia, where I've been doing a lot of work. Um, not everybody has a moon landing, but fun to think about in an exam context. Uh, we can learn from the IB, the International Baccalaureate, though this is a statement of intent, not an actual profile, but I think everything is moving towards creating a much richer narrative of what young people can do. Uh, here's the Experian uh, uh, attempt at this and some of the XP schools doing really interesting work in this area. Uh, here's a school in the western suburbs of Sydney. Uh, this is what every student has, and they're learning to curate, if you like, the business of sharing your portfolio or your CV in an ongoing way. And that's what they're learning as they go through school. Here's another example from Australia. Here's one from uh, North America, widely used now across the world. This is the Mastery Transcript Consortium group of uh, really interesting, some Ivy League uh, universities and uh, schools and colleges uh, in a local area, all combining to find a more accurate way of describing what young people can do. They're moving away from the numeric center feature of that, which is interesting too. Uh, here's a very nice idea also from uh, uh, Australia that uh, the big picture group are doing. There's some examples here, for example, in Doncaster here in the UK. To summarize, um, I think we're on the cusp of an important moment 
uh, of paradigm shift. I know that uh, phrase is overused, but I think, and I'm not going to read all those things out, uh, in each of those directions, fundamentally, we're now talking about evidencing a much wider range of young people's abilities and capabilities. Uh, and uh, that's where we need to go. And I end with a quotation, one of my favorites. To solely use standardized achievement test is like casting a net into the sea, a net that is intentionally designed to let the most interesting fish get away. Then to describe the ones that are caught strictly in terms of their weight and length is to radically reduce what we know about them. To further conclude that all the contents of the sea consist of fish like those in the net compounds the error further. We need more kinds of fish. We need to know more about those we catch. In short, we need uh, new nets. And that's what we're trying to do at Rethinking Assessment. Uh, we're working with head teachers and schools and uh, academy trusts, uh, are looking now to put these into uh, prototype practice in the autumn for the next two years with research partners to build a credible evidence base. We need to acknowledge wider dispositions. We need to look at the kind of things that Kevin Collins was talking about in the area of well-being. We certainly do not need to reduce any of these to a level 3B. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Bill. Um, just one question before we move, out, move on to Jeffrey. But, um, in terms of where change comes from, I mean, I, I, I think we can assume that we're not going to see a kind of Damascene conversion from our English schools minister, or indeed from this government and it, it, its supporters and the media who jump on any kind of suggestion of, of, of change. But what about universities and employers? Uh, in, in many ways, universities have kind of propped up the existing system because you know, our exam system is about signaling. It's about making things easy for employers and universities because there's a, a set of qualifications, GCSEs and A-levels, which they recognize. Uh, and, and even though they might say and admit that they don't necessarily see a connection between people having sheaths of these qualifications and actually being able to ready for work, still they kind of rely on this system. So is part of the way we have to get change to persuade universities and employers to take different things seriously? Yes, in short, and some universities are doing that. The Mastery Transcript Consortium is a good example from the States. Um, Melbourne University's New Metrics Success, good example from Australia. It's got to be a consortium activity, and those consortia always have employers in them. Uh, most of the uh, larger employers in the UK are no, lo no longer interested in your clutch of three or four A-levels, or even uh, in your um, uh, personal statement. Many of them are introducing their own strength-based, asset-based assessments on the point of entry. Uh, so I think, I think that is happening. And I agree with your implied diagnosis that it needs to have employers and HE and colleges on board. Great, thank you, Bill. So now let's turn to Dr. Jeffrey Quay. Uh, Jeffrey is currently the National Director of Education and Standards at Aspirations Academies Trust. He's an experienced education leader, government education advisor, and inspector for both primary and secondary schools. Jeffrey has an enormous passion for improving the life chances of young people and a long held commitment to academic rigor, excellence, and equity. Over to you, Jeffrey. Uh, thank you. So firstly, can I thank um, the RSA for extending this invitation to me? I uh, really appreciate um, the opportunity to contribute to this um, discourse about assessment. Um, firstly, if, if I just pose a couple of questions, and I'm hoping through our discussions, we may tackle them. So one of the questions relates to, is the assessment system inherently unfair? Because um, um, it, it sort of comes out from some of the discussions that 
because there is a proportion of pupils not achieving as well as they should, the system is either biased against them or not providing the right outcomes because of the design. The other question is, what is the role of curriculum and assessment? And I, I just try to answer some of these questions by way of um, my initial remark. Um, can I just say the point that um, was made by Bill, at Aspirations Academy, we recognize the um, transdisciplinary way of learning. So instead of having learning being done in single domains, we look at using um, a framework which we call the No Limits Curriculum, which enables pupils to um, summon components of knowledge to solve real life problems. And we use um, what we call the driving question. So it allows pupils to see the connections between different units of learning. We're still promoting rigor and substantive knowledge acquisition. But if I come back to the discussion, at the core of this discussion is about the role of examinations. Now, I think assessment broadly has different rules in schools. And I, I know Mary you know, points to the fact that there's a need for literacy in assessment. Teachers use whether formative, summative, or even diagnostic assessment for a variety of reasons. And those reasons might not always be the best reasons being used in school. I point to an Ofsted reports about quality of teaching within schools in 2011. And one of the areas of weakness that Ofsted identify relates to the use of assessment. It is not surprising 10 years on, the new early careers framework has one of the, or at least um, five areas of core, core focus. One of them is assessment. So all new teachers will have two years support with developing skills in assessment. Now, I believe that assessment is the fairest way or at least in part in trying to have a glimpse of what pupils have learned in school. I appreciate Mary talks about probably assessments at GCSE need to be scrapped and maybe have no value in the current maybe 21st century climate. But I beg to differ. I think assessment provides the opportunity for teachers to understand what pupils have learned. And I appreciate that the current assessment approaches could be changed to allow for more flexibility. So I'm not calling for an overhaul of the assessment system. I'm arguing for an iteration of the assessment system. Over the last 20 years, we've seen multiple iterations of the assessment system. And at the center of this is the need for fairness. Now, I think two weeks ago, Ofcall argued that um, disadvantaged and same peoples are biased, or sorry, the assessment system is biased against these two groups of um, pupils. And therefore, it, it's sort of inherent within the assessment system, the need for separation between the teaching and learning, and then the award of qualifications based on objective judgments. So I think the assessment system clearly needs some revision or some redefining of what matters, but not to abandon what we have. I think that the system we have provides a framework for which we can reliably assess large populations and have something that is separate from confirmation bias. Now, I just want to talk about the tensions that have always existed in assessment. We've always had the question about absolute standards against relative standards, progress against attainment, and criterion reference against what, what you could argue um, using non-reference. Either of these have flaws, and I think Mary probably will, will share some light on that. So assessment has always had to grapple with some tensions 
But I want to touch on the issue of equity and what the curriculum really represents. And I know Bill's work on trying to bring out some ways of um, capturing dispositions of young people. I think what COVID has revealed to us is this inherent inequality in our society that perpetuates in some form within the education field. So there is a reproduction of experiences of young people based on demographics or, or family backgrounds. And I think uh, we saw that with the lack of resources for uh, remote learning. I know the DfE did very well to support schools with computers and devices and head teachers rose to the challenge. But I think what is affecting the education system is not only to do with the um, assessment not being fit for purpose. I think there's a wider question about the quality of teaching and learning within schools. You know, before the COVID started, we have already a national gap between disadvantage and non-disadvantage, 65% to 31%. So that was the prevailing gap at grade five or above. Now that is not caused by COVID. That was already a problem to do with inequality within society. So I'll argue that what we need for assessment is a level of flexibility that ensures that some element of teacher assessment is incorporated in the overall grade. Opportunities for portfolio type of work that might fit certain students that are not necessarily very good at having um, to perform under exam pressures. But I think there's a lot of benefit to uphold for having an objective assessment. I think that examinations obviously provides motivations for pupils. Again, it allows us to have an accurate you know, validation of learning. So you know, in summing up, I would say that um, the pandemic is an opportunity to you know, consider what a change will look like. It is not the time to have a knee-jerk reaction in abandoning what has worked in the past. Of course, there is a call for change and the call for change you know, requires all of us to contribute to that debate. I think that flexibility is going to be the key in moving forward. And also the government contributing more in terms of leveling up, and I, I borrowed that word uh, in a, in with some um, sort of caution, but leveling up the quality of education, because currently not all pupils are in schools that are deemed by upstairs of being good or outstanding. Now, so by default, there is inequity that is currently being prevailing within our society. And that is um, a symptom of the problem rather than the assessment being at the core of the problem. Thanks. Thank you, Jeffrey. Now, I mean, we're, we're quite explicit, I think, in organising these events to see if we can try to find grounds for some kind of workable consensus to go forward. And it's valuable that you have a different perspective on this, uh, certainly to, to Bill and also, uh, I, I think, to Mary. But in a way, to, to, to ask you the question, some of the reverse when I asked Mary, I noticed you talked about objective assessment and you talked earlier about the danger of confirmation bias. So, you know, is your problem about moving away from the kind of traditional exam paper, end of year assessment methodology that it inherently loses rigor? And if you if there were other ways of undertaking assessment which involved teachers more, uh, which more were more, more formative, but yet you could be convinced of their rigor, would you be less concerned about what might be lost if we were to move away from the system we have now? Well, I, I think um, the system requires some um, revisions or what I'll say iterations. 
I think the use of formative and summative assessment are not mutually exclusive. Because I think in the main, um, these two forms of assessment enables teachers to have a better understanding of how well pupils learn. And as a maths teacher, one of the things I feel is a very important feature of teaching maths is having to test conceptual knowledge as well as procedural knowledge. Now, I don't think teachers have all the skills in designing an assessment that would evidently establish pupils' um, progress within these two areas that I pointed out. So I think that um, we should have some flexibility where the ongoing assessment of pupils in the, in the course of their study, being in key stage four, key stage three, contributes to the overall outcome whilst creating room for what um, Bill talks about, you know, trying to promote certain right dispositions. Now, I, I don't think the dispositions, the idea is to measure them, but it, it's creating a room where pupils, if it's to do a resilience, opportunities for pupils to demonstrate resilience by tackling unfamiliar problems and maybe learning from failure and setbacks. But I, I think we need some objective assessment that allows pupils to show what they know also for progression and for benefits of um, pupils' um, sort of future learning. Because I think, um, you know, trying to think about assessment being all dependent on a teacher's view at, at a very um, least level, you think it's for teaching purposes, but for the currency and maybe what I'll say institutional value of those qualifications, it needs to be regulated well. And we, we want to see standards rising in the sense that we can be confident of the outcomes that people achieve at the end of the education year. Thank you, Jeffrey. So last but not least, with um, I turning, I'm turning to Stephen Tierney, who's a recently retired executive head teacher. He's chair of the Head Teachers Roundtable and an influential speaker on leadership and people development, as well as school's core business of teaching assessment and learning. Stephen's latest book, Educating with Purpose, argues that in the wake of the COVID crisis and after 10 years of focus on what works, what we need now is to shift to what matters. Over to you, Stephen. Thanks very much, Matthew. It's been great listening to, to, to everybody that's gone before, really rich debate already. Um, and one of the things I'd kind of start off with is, is kind of a bit of Dylan William. Uh, who talks about kind of discussions and debates about assessment are actually proxies for disagreements and agreements and discussions about curriculum. And I'd kind of push that one uh, place further and say, actually, the discussions, debates and disagreements about curriculum actually are centred in and around purpose of education and what we believe the purpose of education might well be. And so if we kind of take the decade past, there has been quite a considerable shift um, towards what people might say primarily or arguably even exclusively a cultural transmission model of education. So education is about transmission of culture. Quite often use the phrase from Matthew Arnold, the best is that it's been thought and said. Um, and, and that's tended to be within a, a subject or a disciplinary sense. And you begin to see echoes of that in Ofsted's latest framework, for example, where uh, the subject-based curriculum from a secondary education historically is now very much being uh, seen and looked for within a, um, a primary uh, curriculum. And I remember I was at an RSA event, or oh, it must have been a couple of years ago, because we were face-to-face -face with people. And there was a head teacher talking about how their pupils in early years could tell you the difference between physics, chemistry and biology. Um, 
which, which was kind of right, quite an interesting uh, way to go. Um, what there hasn't been is there hasn't been the same focus on personal empowerment, in particular perspective around praxis, so moving thought to action, or around preparation for work or preparation for citizenship. That's just not as strong in our system anymore. And these different perspectives on education, these different philosophies of education, tend to view uh, to drive some of the curriculum and then the assessment. So with cultural transmission, very much a subject-based focus, we see a lot of work around formal written exams, uh, SATs, the GCSEs, because that reflects the curriculum that we've got. And so I actually think that one of the positives of the past, past decade is that we've seen a lot more debate around drivers that would be uh, termed vertical integration, the sequencing of curriculum over time, and as a consequence, the more synoptic style of assessment, and also the rigour. And by that, I'm talking about rigour in terms of a, a, um, bringing a disciplinary approach to the teaching, you know, teaching people not just maths, but how to be a mathematician, how mathematicians think, or how scientists think. But it's also useful when you look at these curriculum drivers to see what we've lost. One of the things we've lost is relevance. And by that, I mean relevance to the individual and relevance to the community in which that individual belongs. Uh, we've lost coherence to an extent, and by that, and it's interesting uh, hearing Jeffrey talk about uh, interdisciplinary thinking. We've lost some of that uh, interdisciplinary thinking, uh, as we, as, and that is kind of where that lack of coherence comes from. And certainly one of the things is, is a lack of balance. So the intellectual has become everything. And we've seen a, a, a kind of assessment which is both intellectual and individual. That's been its primary focus, GCSEs, SATs, uh, A-levels. Um, and and that, that's a shame because there is different kind of ways that we can learn and can learn collectively. And there are different things beyond the intellectual that we may wish uh, to grasp. And just if, if, if I can, the other thing, um, and I can dig into this more, is I think there's also a danger that we, we've lost focus. And by focus, I mean teaching the most important elements of our subjects. We're trying to teach too much, what I describe as a content fetish. Um, if knowledge is a good thing, then loads more of it must be an even better thing. But if you haven't got enough time for pupils to truly learn it rather than just encounter it, that's problematic. It, it, it lacks the depth. And the other thing that I think is worth unpicking for us alongside purpose is, in terms of educational purpose, is the purpose that we're putting assessment to. And part of the problem and part of why we're losing some of the, the nuance of assessment is that it's driven by the accountability system. And that's leading to some really invalid conclusions. Because whereas uh, I would maintain that GCSE is a, is a reasonable assessment, it's a pretty reliable assessment of what a pupil might know within a subject, it's actually a very poor basis on which to make your judgment about a school. Uh, why? Because if, if I'm going to use GCSEs to make a judgment about a school, I basically want to run a school that only allows Chinese girls in. Why? Because people from Chinese background um, actually perform very highly in our system, girls outperform boys, and if I've got a problem, uh, rather than do something profound as a leader, I'll just phone up the moms and dads and leave it with them, uh, and the tiger moms and dads can kick in. And so part of when we're looking at this idea of what accountability can do, it's what are the conclusions that we want to draw? And, and so I think if we look at assessment in terms of what are the conclusions, we can start to unpick some things. So uh, I'm, I'm quite comfortable 
with, with examinations at 16. But I don't think we can use them for school accountability purpose. And I certainly don't think we need nine grades to tell us whether people are capable of going forward, if you like, and studying uh, at, at a sixth form level, uh, you know, a further education or a higher education level. I, we don't need that. And we don't need them all to be pen and paper exams. We might have some pen and paper exams, but there might be some elements which are teacher assessed as well. And that brings us to start unpacking things like end of key stage two. Um, so the end of key stage two exams are primarily there for accountability purposes. Imagine if we shifted them to the end of year five. And imagine if instead of them being high stakes uh, exams for primary schools, we actually sample, we, we sample 50,000 pupils across the system instead of half a million. And, and what we do is we then use the basis of that 50,000 to report and say, well, across the system, it looks like these are real strengths, but actually these are some weaknesses. And, and you've now got another year at primary school and schools could voluntarily have all their pupils do them. But we only need 50,000. Beyond that, we're not going to learn much. You might even argue we only need 5,000. I'll leave that to the statistician. But why do I think this is the moment? Um, and this is our generation's great pause. It, it's a time of quite discontinuous change, disconcerting change that has made us think again. And it's not just linked to the pandemic, but it's kind of a, a, a beautiful timing that this um, kind of discussion is happening on the anniversary of, of the horrific events that happened that led to the, uh, the murder of, of George Floyd. Because you've got a situation where we're looking at furnace here and and it's not that, if you like, assessment is biased against certain groups of young people. Life is biased against certain groups of young people. And that just comes out in the assessments. And so we need to go back. And so part of this, I look, and, and I, I worked in Blackpool for 20 years. And if you look at England, there's 36,000 what are called lower layer super output areas, uh, little geographical areas, about 69,000. If you've got these 36,000 and put them in order from the most advantaged to the least advantaged, and you looked at the 10 least advantaged, eight of them are in Blackpool. In terms of deprivation, it's off the scale of bonkers. And just looking at a curriculum and a set of assessments that are linked to cultural transmission is insufficient. There are issues around personal empowerment, there are issues around preparation for citizenship, and there is issues around preparation for work, all of which are important all of which need to be reflected in our uh, education system, which need to be reflected within our curriculum, which will come out in our assessment systems. And so this for me is a moment, it's a moment where the poverty that I, ex that I experienced in terms of seeing it, not living it, seeing it for 20 years has become wider known. Um, and so I think the whole assessment curriculum purpose of education debate is a great one to be having at this moment. Stephen, thank you so much for that. Um, in, in the time that we've got for conversation, I want to try to explore two or three. I mean, my experience of, of, of policy change is that change doesn't generally happen overnight through one major kind of conversion or piece of legislation. It, it's the, the, the new world comes through a, very, a process of chipping away at the old world. So I want to look at two or three ways in which we might chip away at what we've got at the moment and which might enable us to think about change. And I want to start with Stephen's point at the end and go back to you, Stephen, because I have heard this point before, which is 
a particularly problematic element of our system is the way in which it's the same thing, in this case, GCSEs or A-levels, we judge pupils, we use the same criteria for judging pupils as how we judge schools. And it's this interlock of the way we judge pupils and the way we judge schools, which, make, which makes the assessment so kind of domineering in terms of its influence of everything that goes on in the school. So Stephen, starting with you, if we go in kind of reverse order, how, how would we judge schools if we were to be judging schools differently from how we want to, to assess pupils? It depends whether you want to give them a number. So do you want to give them a number? If you want to give them a number... I want, no, I don't want to give them a number. No, but listen, no it's a rhetorical I, question. No, it's, I'm not, yeah, OK. I mean, I live in, put it this way, Stephen, I live in Lambeth, which has got lots of great schools now, but it really wasn't that case 20 years ago. And there was quite a long time when people didn't really seem to know what was going on in some pretty disappointing schools. And, no, and I don't want to return to that. So, yeah. No, but we're not going to return to that. The availability of data now is, is totally different. It's about how we're going to use that data. So... Um, what we basically have is, and I go back to, to, to which school would I run? So let me be clear which school I wouldn't run. Uh, I would not want to work in a school where there are a lot of long-term disadvantaged pupils. Why? Absolute nightmare in the accountability system because those long-term disadvantaged pupils, if you like, do equally as badly wherever they are in the system. London is no better than the Northwest and the Northeast. And so what I look at is, do we make the primary driver accountability in terms of high stakes cliff edge? Or do we make the primary driver in terms of um, school improvement? So imagine if Ofsted took, took the 400 schools that they've gone back to repeatedly and given a grade four to, and nothing has changed, and said, oh, actually, instead of visiting every two or three years and calling you inadequate, why don't we look at a process where we will produce a, a, a narrative on almost an annual basis and work with you? because their process of offset is one of disciplined inquiry. It's, it's not fit to generate a number, but it could produce a narrative. And those narratives are judgments. And, and, and that could be used to start an iterative process. It's that thing around formative and summative assessment. Uh, and so it isn't about whether we hold schools account, it's about how we hold them to account and how we help them to improve. And that's the driver that I'm interested in. Thanks. So, so Jeffrey, turning to you, I mean, you know, we know that even now there's still a lot of gaming goes on in the system because schools are desperate to get the results because that's how they're judged. What do you, how do you respond to Stephen's point about how we might try to, to separate out the way we judge people from the way we judge schools? I think Steve makes very interesting points, but I think the Ofsted framework has undergone multiple changes. I think the most current is the education inspection framework and COVID has not allowed the new framework to embed because the idea is to move away from the focus on external exam data because that was driving some of the pressures in the accountability system. But I think there is an important point to acknowledge that teaching and learning needs to be at least good in all schools. And it's not the case in most situations where Ofsted had graded the school as less than good, maybe requires improvement or inadequate. And I think we need to hold to account school leaders as well as um, pupils and parents that are supporting younger ones in, in schools. Because in the time spent in school, we all have the aim to educate young people to become productive citizens. But then resources are just gonna be as limited as one can imagine. So. If you are in a school for five years, 
and you leave without the requisite knowledge or the skills that you need to acquire, then it becomes very difficult to justify you know, the gains you've made. So I think that the burden of proof is on school leaders to try and provide the education that enables young people to play active parts in society. And Ofsted is just an inspectorate that is, you know, have the duty to regulate. And I, I really support the job of Ofsted to gain to schools. But I also acknowledge what Stephen talks about. If the school has a repeated cycle of inadequate outcomes, then they will need something more bespoke to try and get them out of that. And I know disadvantaged people's proportion in the school might make a difference in how well a school is doing. But we've also seen schools that have disadvantage and courts and done really well. So there is some discussion about how effective leaders are tackling some of the social issues. And I think poverty can really be a great decider in how well a school do because the intake is always going to present some challenges. And I know with attendance, for instance, if you have high deprivation in your area. One of the common issues is attendance. And the more pupils are out of school, the less well they'll do. So um, we, we just need to keep having the discussions, but I don't think there is um, a straightforward answer in terms of even without Ofsted, schools would not necessarily perform well. You know, so there is in a way of saying that Ofsted is no more in existence, we'll have a better education outcomes for all young people. That, that wouldn't be the case. Matthew, can I just come back and clarify? I'm, I'm in favour of having a regulator within the system. I just think the regulator has to be limited by what it can do with any validity and not confuse a school's intake for a school's effectiveness, which is where Ofsted effectively, I think, are at the minute. Um, so, yeah. yeah, regulating the system, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I know from conversations I've had with people at Ofsted in the past that there's always been this sense in the organisation that they can't be involved in supporting and improving schools because that will damage their objectivity in assessing schools so that might be you know part of this kind of story but um bill uh to you in terms of this this question of 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 how we judge schools if we wanted to judge you know as part of how we might judge pupils differently well i think you're right on your problem uh, identification uh matthew i think this is the fault line uh, or a fault line um I think, um, and this partly goes back to what Mary was saying about the purposes of assessment, we, we confuse those things that schools record, those things that schools evidence, and those things which schools report on in the public domain or get reported on them in the public domain, such as public examinations. And I think we need to have a much more multimodal, fluid use of the data that's available, just as you would uh, in, in, in any contemporary organization, looking at its different kind of performance metric metrices. Um, Stephen's already suggested one way you could do it, and that's sample testing. It's what PISA does. Um, it's what the state of Victoria does. Uh, it tests uh, a sample of its 15-year-olds, and it reports on those year on year, so it can, it, can, it can spot trends. That's one way of doing it. Another would be to take the best of the Progress 8 idea, but have a more balanced scorecard of measures that you're looking to see progress on. Um, uh, another way would be to, and I think this speaks to what Jeffrey was saying, to take the best of the existing revised recent-ish framework, Ofsted framework, and to uh, help schools think more imaginatively about their three eyes of intent, implementation, and impact, uh, 
and require them not just to use a knowledge lens, which is pretty much what that part of the framework does, but to be interested in not just what kids know, but what they can do and who they're becoming. And in, in a sense, invite the school to, op, to, to offer you its theory of change. I mean, that's what schools do. Uh, and you then evaluate appropriately using appropriate methods against what the school says it's going to be doing. Now, as a society, and we can always go back every four or five years to the electorate and ask them to check in whether or not we need to measure one, two, three core subjects or eight core subjects or what those is. Those are absolutely legitimate debates. And I hope we will come back uh, to GCSE, by the way, because I, I want to hold an olive branch out to Jeffrey in the spirit of this conversation. because I think there is an answer there. Um, but I think multimodal, just, just don't get, you said, um, let's avoid binary. I think we just got stuck in a bind in thinking that progress eight equals how good a school is. So Mary, I want you to, to, to respond to this conversation, but I'm also going to give you the kind of second question I wanted to ask everybody where we're running out of time. So we'll have to accelerate, but as a non-expert, the thing that's so obvious to me is why don't we assess different subjects much more differently? You know, I, I, I look at my own daughter who's eight and she's doing maths and doing mathletics and, you know, at her age, I mean, there's a right answer. And then I look at what she's learning in English. She writes novels in her spare time, but this is something which is completely irrelevant to her school education. And I have to kind of tell her a teacher about it at parents' evenings because there's no reason why my teacher will be interested in the fact that my daughter writes novels in her spare time. So uh, the second question for you, Mary, after you responded to this is, is maybe a kind of halfway house here just to say, well, let's more deliberately use very different ways of assessing different kinds of subject. I will, I'll, I'll go back and then come back to the different assessments, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think most of what I would say has been said, although I think the issue about how you judge a school based on judging its pupils' qualifications and how well they achieve in national testing systems is, you know, that is a red herring. We, we know there's plenty of research to show that, the, you know, GCSEs weren't designed for this. If we look at the history of education, they were designed for something very different. And now they're there to measure a school. And that's a shame. And that's one of the reasons why I would like to, to scrap them. I'm not saying we scrap all, all um, examinations at the age of 16. I mean, obviously, we've changed the school leaving age in this country, too. So we should also be asking the question about the investment in national testing, and the, the, you know, literally millions of pounds spent at that age on whether that is the right thing to have there. I certainly think there should be some form of assessment to help guide students onto the next phase there. Um, but I, I think also then, if you contrast that with the very narrow judgment that, that Ofsted ultimately give, which is a bit like standing on a medal podium at the end, you know, you get gold, silver or bronze or, or you know, or just an also run, that also bothers me because it's not good enough to conceptualise what actually happens in schools, because schools are such complex um, environments and institutions. And I think, I think we've got to a point where these things don't specifically or adequately characterise not only what children are taught, but how they learn, how they express that learning. And as the example you just gave, Matthew, about, you know, that, that children do all sorts of things, both in and out of school. And I think 
the interesting thing is that we've all become obsessed with and utterly reliant on these very, very limited measures. And I would love to, you know, I often, I used to work for one of the major exam boards as a researcher, and I spent a lot of time working on things like grade descriptions with very expert examiners and trying to get someone to pin down what a grade A meant. It's really, really hard, even now. But I mean, it seems to me that when you publish these things in the newspapers or people talk about them, everyone knows what a grade A is or a grade nine or whatever. And I've been working in assessment research for 20 years and I'd still say, it's really difficult to try and establish that, that understanding. I think the other issue we have in schools is we mentioned that notion of citizenship, personal education, something I'm very, very committed to and I think is so important. Yet isn't it interesting how citizenship has just slid out of the um, ratings in our secondary education. There was such a great commitment to it at the turn of the millennium. And then one of the factors that it seems to me is, is the fact that it was never sufficiently coupled with a nationally recognized qualification for long enough. That was one of the problems with the citizenship. Um, coming back to your, your other question then is, is thinking about, I agree, I think we need to be, this is where the assessment literacy comes into it. We do need to use different types of assessment and we have to help people understand why they are valuable within the context that they are. Uh, everyone's used the word progression so far and it's something I'm really interested in because to make progress in history is not at all the same as making progress in science or English, whatever. I'm not sure, I can't come up with this yet, I'm researching this at the moment, how do we understand what progress looks like in those subjects? It certainly doesn't look like a lot of the very narrow grade descriptions that are created for national qualifications because they're a very particular way of designing an assessment. And I think that, I think we could do a lot better. Um, so I, I think we should be open to different modes of assessment. The biggest problem will be explaining that to people. Because as I said before, we all know what grade A or grade nine looks like. I'm not sure that we do, but we think we I do. I don't think we do. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, how hard would it be for a parent then to just hear, well, actually, you know, uh, Sarah doesn't have an A, but she's really, really good at English. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to give you a grade. That's always really, really, you know, that's a tricky thing in terms of what we've done with our education system and what we've sold to people as what matters in terms of being educated and what the aim of education is. So, so uh, I don't have a qualification in sharing events, although I have lots of experience, but it's done me no good. <laughs> It's done me absolutely no good at all this time because we've run out of time and we've only just started this this conversation. Um, I just want to say a couple of little things in reflection before we wind it up. Uh, first, to apologise for the fact that we haven't got through more uh, conversation, but I, I do think that we have a responsibility, those of us with different perspectives on this debate, to really work hard at this particular moment to try to at least agree what it is we disagree about. And if we could do that, it would take a lot of the heat. Uh, out of the debate. And I think we've started to do some of that today and we must carry on with it. And the second thing I'd say is, and this is not a critique of, of the event, it was an RSA event, but we must involved, involve teachers and parents and children in this debate as well. I, I'm, my area of expertise is work. And something interesting that's happened about the workplace in the last few months, uh, uh, partly as a consequence of COVID, is a, is a, is a commitment to well-being 
uh, amongst good employers at least. Now this is an interesting idea because it's never previously been the case that we think it's a responsibility of an employer to care whether the people who work for them are actually experiencing well-being in their work. We had a kind of instrumental view, which is, well, you come to work to get paid and whether or not you enjoy it is neither here nor there. Now, many employers, that's changed. They do now recognize they've got a responsibility to the well-being of their staff, but yet we have no similar view, it seems to me, or no, we are moving in this direction, but we don't seriously consider the responsibility we have to ensure children's well-being in relation to the content of their education. Anyway, some random thoughts from me. Uh, a reminder that this series is part of the RSA's new education program, which is working across a range of projects and partnerships with the mission to make education after COVID fairer than it was before. If you're interested in knowing more about the research, please do get in touch. You'll find contact details in the chat box to speak to a member of our team. And if you have an interest in the topics we are debating across this series and experiences you want to share, whether you're a teacher, parent, employer, concerned citizen, it doesn't say pupil in my list, but I'm going to add pupil. Please do join the continuing conversation on Twitter at hashtag RSA Education. Finally, all that remains to say for me to say is to say thank you and to apologize to today's brilliant speakers who've given us a bit of their time, but I want to hear a lot more from all of them, Mary, Bill, Jeffrey, and Stephen. And thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.